Election Morning 2020. A urinal in an upstairs bathroom of Atlanta's State Farm Arena is backed up and starts to overflow, causing water to seep through crevices in the floor, creating a brief pour down below where election workers have just begun to set up to count the ballots for President of the United States. The election workers suspend their work for a while, as the maintenance staff is called to plug the urinal and sop up the mess, a routine mishap quickly fixed. But it soon becomes the fodder for a grand conspiracy theory, when late that night ballots are put away in containers and then, under orders from Georgia's Secretary of State, pulled back out and counted. Surely this was no accident, some Trump supporters argue. Surely that flood early in the morning was manufactured by Democrats to provide cover for Biden partisans to stuff those containers with fake ballots, depriving Donald Trump of his rightful victory. It was all complete nonsense that, along with other bogus claims of fraud and theft about the 2020 election, is expertly debunked by authors Mark Bowden and Matthew Teague in their new book called The Steal. As we prepare to recall the horrific events one year ago this week on January 6th, we'll talk to Bowden and Teague about the lies that led up to that day on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. You know, it is a little bit mind-blowing to go back and read, as I did in The Steel, about all the absurd conspiracy theories that were circulating around the election in 2020 uh, in the aftermath. I mean, that State Farm video, which uh, supposedly uh, was, you know, showed them stuffing the ballots, bringing out these fake Biden ballots. Um the Sharpie Gate in in Arizona, where people were using Sharpies to uh, mark their ballots instead of pencils. Uh, Italy Gate, the whole claim about some satellites uh, directed in Italy to flip ballots uh, throughout the United States. I mean, it was all so ridiculous. It was all, there was nothing to any of it. I, I don't think we took it all that seriously as these claims circulated around at the time. But man, did they have traction with a whole bunch of Trump supporters in this country. And here we are, you know, a year later after January 6th, and there are people who still buy this stuff. A lot of people. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, Millions. we, we right. uh, so Yahoo News, um, the Yahoo News YouGov poll that just came out, and this is in line with many, many polls from uh, mainstream news organizations, said that 9% of Trump voters believe that Biden won the election in 2020 fair and square. And that's down from 13% in our last poll. So it's going in the wrong direction. Everything that people are doing to try to you know, change the dynamic clearly isn't isn't working. And that's what's so fascinating about this book is Bowden and Teague, they, they talk to all of these 
people who are involved, you know, at all levels, you know, from the people who are coordinating the efforts to overturn the election to largely the, the people at, at the grounds, ground level, the sort of grassroots Republicans who were buying into all of these conspiracy theories and, and acting on them. And, you know, the challenge is, how is this going to change? How are people going to actually be persuaded to change their minds when they are presented with facts, with overwhelming evidence, with the truth, uh, that just doesn't seem to happen. I think one of the most frustrating things about this is, is that the 2020 election, despite being held in the midst of a global pandemic, was possibly one of the safest, most secure, best resourced elections that America has ever run. That being said, of course, any kind of, you know, system that you know, kind of over the course of a short period of time, shuffles close to, you know, 175 or 180 million people into a system and then attempts to kind of count every kind of micro decision that all of those people make is is going to have errors. It's just inevitable. There's lots of human error in elections. But what what happened is that those errors and that the steel demonstrates those errors were sort of weaponized by... By people at the top level, Trump, Republican Party operatives, and that that weaponization of minor errors found extraordinarily fertile ground in the minds of millions of people who were primed to believe that a minor error was evidence of a vast conspiracy. I think it's a symbiotic relationship between the masses of people who are already ready to accept these conspiracy theories, and then the people at the top, the Trump campaign, the Rudy Giuliani's of the world, Trump himself, who Fox are then News. ready, to, <laughs> Fox, ready yeah. to, to, to weaponize them. Because what happens, and we saw this in the Bowden and Teague book over and over again, there'd be some, some mistake or something misinterpreted. It would end up on a video. The video would go viral. It's in the conspiracy theory you know, bloodstream. And then... The Trump campaign and their lawyers would pick up on them and put these things in legal briefs, you know? So it's that relationship. I mean, part of it is that there was no one thing that the Trump partisans could point to. No one document, no one big reveal that they could hone in on. Because it was all so thin and, you know, ethereal and, and, and silly, really. But they, by flooding the zone, by just throwing so much of it out there, you know, you, you if you refuted one, you know, they can come back and say, but what about this? And, you know, what about that? And right, um, right. It, it, it's the worst game of whack-a-mole ever. Yeah. 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 And, and so it was impossible to sort of, you know, break through and convince people. Now, part of it also is that, uh, you know, our polarized media in which Trump supporters, you know, are not going to believe what they hear on CNN or MSNBC or read in the New York Times uh, or the Washington Post or they hear on skullduggery. They're just not going to believe it. Uh, right? Because we're all partisans in their view, and we've all uh, overstated the case against Trump and, you know, made false allegations. This is the way they look at it. And, you know, that makes it impossible to be, when the question is asked, what do you do? Well, you know, we've all reported on how ridiculous all these claims are. It's all been exposed to the extent that you can, but it doesn't 
make a difference. That uh, point you made about, you know, it's not just, you know, one thing. It's it's happening, you know, it's these right. small, it, happening all over the country, uh, all these different examples. It's what they call in their book the blunderbuss strategy, which the Trump lawyers seized on. And the problem is it just over time erodes trust. And they, they say in their book that at the end of the day, democracy depends on a modicum of trust. And that's just dissipating. And how do you how do you put the genie back in in the bottle? How do you reestablish trust, particularly in this age of polarization and and fragmented media and social media and all of these issues? It's very very hard. And that is why, by the way, and you know, at some point we we should get into this. I know you have strong feelings about this, Mike. There is a debate going on in the media about whether there needs to be some kind of a paradigm shift in how we cover these issues, you know, whether we have to cover democracy in a way that we haven't done before and the importance of, of democracy. Well, yeah, I mean, look, it's an important issue, but, you know, I what I've reacted to against is the claims that we've got to drop uh, our traditional approaches of trying to reach out to both sides of an issue and give them an give everybody an opportunity to have their say and uh, you know un- try to understand where the other where other people are coming from because that in the view of some critics is uh, you know a, a, an exercise in whataboutism and false equivalence and you know we're not standing up to the liars well i would think that you know the coverage has been pretty on this story about what happened in the 2020 election. I'd say the story has, the the coverage has been pretty aggressive and pretty pointed in pointing out all the falsehoods perpetrated by the Trump crowd. And yet, it what effect does it, it have? And, yeah, and, and, and I think, I think right. the point is that, yes, there is a there may be a kind of a fatalism setting in that there's nothing we can really do about it. But the truth is we need to do what we've always done, which is to report the facts right. um, to get the truth out there and to keep doing it and repeating it, because that's what we do. That's our job. That's our mission. That's our responsibility. Agreed. And which is why we want to talk to our guest, Bowden and Teague. But before we do... This is our first episode of 2022, and it's just a reminder that that which we are talking about today may not be what we're going to be talking about in, you know, six months or a year from now. You know, things come up to bite you in the ass that you never expect uh, as a country. And I was reminded of that when I was reading a story in the Sunday Times that uh, leapt out at me by Eric Schmidt about, uh, we all remember the suicide bomber attack on uh, by the ISIS cell guy in Afghanistan as we were leaving that country. And uh, Eric Schmidt had a follow-up on that, pointing out that the guy who did it, the suicide bomber, had been an engineering student who had been with the Pakistani Taliban and then was actually in CIA custody. He was turned over. It was in Bagram prison and was released just like days before when there was that mass release. And here's the part that really leapt out at me because it's... um, Talked, uh, Schmidt does talked about the increasing concern about the ISIS K cell in Afghanistan, and 
he quotes something I completely missed. In October, Colin Call, the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, told Senate Armed Services Committee that ISIS-K could be able to attack the United States sometime in 2022. Quote, we could see ISIS-K generate that capability somewhere between 6 and 12 months. I hadn't caught that when the yeah. uh, uh, top Defense Department official gave that testimony a couple months ago. But, you know, just a reminder, like, um, you never know um, what, as I said before, might come back to uh, bite you in the ass. And it's something I hadn't been thinking about, that ISIS-K could attack us in the United States. But there you go. Something to worry about for 2022. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. Yes, right. Now let's go back to what we were worrying about all in 2020 a, and 21. And Meteor about to hit the... the, the yeah, 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 exactly. Great, great movie, by the way. Don't yeah. look up. The asteroid about really to attack movie. the United States. Yeah. Another one. All right, let's get to... Uh, we've got our guests, Mark Bowden and Matthew Teague. So let's get to it. Okay, we are now joined by Mark Bowden and Matthew Teague, authors of the new book, The Steal, The Attempt to Overturn the 2020 Election and the People Who Stopped It. Mark and Matthew, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having us. So, uh, great time to uh, come out with this book. We're on the one-year anniversary this week of January 6th. And what your book really does is sort of dissect the run-up to January 6th, how we got there, and the sort of crazy conspiracy theories, one by one in each state, that fueled what we now call the big lie. So I just wanted to sort of start out by just going through some of them, because when you really put them under a microscope, you see how wacky this whole thing was. So, uh, Mark, why don't you start out with the state farm arena urinal flood uh, that became fodder for one of the wackiest of the conspiracy theories uh, in Georgia. Just tell us what happened. Michael, uh, it was as simple as there was a, a flood at the arena center, which eventually was traced back to a urinal upstairs, which because of the lack of use of the facility during the uh, pandemic had eroded and stopped up. And so it caused a flood down in the counting room in the counting area where they were beginning to process ballots. And this you know, led to a conspiracy theory that it had been staged in order for the uh, Democrats, basically, to haul in all kinds of fake Biden ballots. Do I have that right, Matt? Yeah, yeah, that's the gist of it, yeah. The idea is the Democrats or some Democrats stuffed up a urinal at the arena in order to cause a flood. For what purpose? How, how did that uh, advance the cause, as it were? Go ahead, Matt. You, you take that one. Well, the uh, the gist of it was, I mean, it was not it was never completely coherent. But the, the gist of it was that, yes, that there had been some manufactured plumbing emergency that had happened in the State Farm Arena. And that during that, all the observers and the press and everybody was moved out of the counting room. And then during, you know, in, in that span, there was some sort of switcheroo where they were hauling in suitcases 
of, of Biden votes and hauling out suitcases of Trump votes. Um, that's the gist of it, none of which is supported by any of the security camera footage or the witnesses who were there or the observers or the officials or anybody else. But this became the, the, the fodder for a major attack on the Georgia election results, right? First, the president of the United States. The president, yeah. yeah the right. president himself, during his infamous call with Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, the one in which he pressed Raffensperger to find 11,000 plus votes, mentioned a specific grandmotherly election worker who he accused of staging this thing, Ruby Freeman. He mentioned her somewhere north of a dozen times by name. The most powerful man in the world is sort of picking on this election worker. We talk about these conspiracy theories as being wacky and zany and crazy, but obviously there's a very dark side to it all on multiple levels, you know, and I want to talk about that a little bit. All of the, the election workers who were kind of caught up in these conspiracy theories really suffered. I mean, that's one level of the sort of dark side of all of this. One example is Lawrence Sloan, who I think was also at the State Farm Arena. Tell us about his case, because there's a really chilling moment in the book where he is literally on the run. I mean, yeah. I think he says, I I'm on the run because he yeah. has to flee people who are coming after him. So tell us that story. Well, Lawrence was sort of at the, the very front end of a, a new stage, I think, in the way our democracy interacts with technology, was that even while he was sorting the ballots, um, he was getting messages from people saying, hey, did you see this tweet from this you know, powerful official? <laughs> did you see this Instagram post? And he started to realize, even as he's sitting there doing it, that something has gone terribly awry. And millions of views of, of these sort of handheld videos are going up of him just doing his job. And he realized, wait, something has, has happened that I don't fully understand it. He left, he went out to the parking deck to call his brother and uh, take a smoke or something. And then he, he saw a little caravan of Trump slogan pickup trucks with uh, flags and things like that and uh, came at him on the parking deck. And he just freaked out and he didn't know like how far does this thing go because he's getting death threats online and here come these people in the parking deck. And he just took off running and ran back to his old neighborhood across the city. What was the conspiracy theory about him? Once again, it was never particularly coherent. It was more a general misunderstanding by a lot of people of the way votes are counted, held up against perfectly innocent video. In the video, Lawrence is operating a an envelope slicing machine. And he feeds an envelope in, and at one point it nips his finger. He gets a little, little bite from the blade that opens the envelopes. And he flips the machine off. And the reason, and he pulls out this piece of extra paper, the reason that it nipped him was that somebody against the instructions that are included with mail-in ballots had included some other paperwork. And when he did that, it, it caused the machine to kind of buck and bite his finger a little bit. So he wads up the extra material. It's just a little piece of paper and throws it away. That's it. So people think he's rolling up a ballot, a ballot. for a ballot, Trump which is and throwing it much, out. Yeah, about, those ballots are enormous, a multifolded sort of big piece of paper, almost poster-sized thing. And so what he did was completely innocent, but people spun it um, on Twitter in particular as he flipped off a ballot for Trump. 
And I think assumed because he was black that it would have been a ballot for Trump that he didn't like. Then he wads it up and throws the ballot away. And he became sort of the face of all the frustration that Trump supporters felt as they watched the vote count turn, you know, not in their favor and end up, you know, in this this chase across the city. So I want to step back because we've gone now through two particular examples of these kind of wild conspiracy theories, you know, the kind of the the urinal situation and the kind of the ballot opening machine problem. But they are part of what you describe as a larger strategy that was pursued at a high level, and that's the blunderbuss strategy. This is only one of many examples. So Tell us, if you can, about this blunderbuss strategy, which seems to be kind of concocted at a relatively high level, but which also kind of fed into all of these individual fears and kind of a a group of, of credulous, frightened people who were kind of willing listeners to this blunderbuss strategy. Well, we're all familiar with the con with confirmation bias, which is a term in science for when you expect a certain result, you tend to see the experiment as confirming what you expect. And Donald Trump had for years been laying the foundation for the idea that the election was going to be stolen, that there was this huge fraud that was being perpetrated. So many of his supporters, who were, many of whom were volunteered to be observers at election sites, went in looking for fraud. And when they saw something like Lawrence Sloan tearing out a piece of paper and throwing it away, it confirmed what they suspected. This kind of stuff went on all over the country and ordinarily it wouldn't have amounted to anything. But the strategy employed by Donald Trump and his allies, which I call the blunderbuss strategy, which is just named after the colonial era precursor to the shotgun, which wasn't very accurate, but which blasted a lot of shot. The the whole point of the strategy was not to make claims that were verifiable, but rather to make a lot of claims, to create a cloud of suspicion that was made up of things as ludicrous as Lauren Sloan, or there was a woman in Arizona named Libby Stone who thought she saw the signature of Satan in voting spreadsheets. And so she complained that there was an evil plot in Arizona. There was a guy in Delaware County next door to where I live in Pennsylvania who claimed that uh, as many as 100,000 fake Biden ballots were inserted into the the election, which is something which would be immediately apparent in the voting statistics and which never happened. But it didn't really matter to Trump and Giuliani whether there was any provable validity to these claims. The idea was just to put them out there and they had plenty of allies in, you know, on Fox TV and One America Network and these other propagandistic platforms where they would, these were like megaphones for all of these complaints. So that in the end, I think even reasonable people might be led to believe that maybe there is something wrong with this election just because so many people are making 
place. That's what I want to drill down on, which is why did so many people believe this stuff? I mean, basic sort of empirical reporting. Nobody has found any Democrat who was stuffing that urinal at the State Farm Arena. Nobody's found anybody that was tossing away 100,000 ballots or destroying them. I mean, the sort of basic reporting that one would do to verify any of this None of it has been confirmed. So how is it and why is it that so many people bought into this and believed it? Well, my sense of it, Michael, is that the uh, ground had been prepared for years. I think that Donald Trump, in his, throughout his political career and as president, you know, did his very best to undermine all what we would consider to be responsible sources of information, whether it's the media, whether they're institutions or professions. He, I think, created a following that trusted only him. And what he told them was that they were going to find this enormous fraud, that the election was going to be rigged. So, for instance, in Delaware County, Pennsylvania, you had Leah Hoops, who founded an organization before the election was held called the PA Watchdogs. And they went to the polls not to observe, but to look for evidence of what they were convinced was going to happen. Yeah, you know, you you have a, a scene, a poignant scene at the end of the book where Brad uh, Raffsenberger, the secretary of state in Georgia, who received that call from President Trump, that infamous hour-long call on January 2nd, pulls out a, a book that he hadn't read since high school, I think, Eric Hoffer's uh, True Believer. And, you know, understanding, and this is so, the question that Mike asked is just so important now and going forward, the, the psychology of these tens of millions, you know, maybe 30% of the country or more who are vulnerable to these kinds of conspiracy theories. I, I just want to, what do you think, you know, having done all of this reporting and talked to all of these people, what can be done about it? I mean, do you have any any thoughts? I mean, this is kind of um, cosmic, I guess, in some ways, but but it's so important. Once you finish this book, what do you think needs to be done to deal with this problem? Go ahead, Matt. Well, I think that, you know, one of the things we found was that the strength of the American system is its decentralization. It's not one building that people can run into and disrupt and and change the election. It happens in counties and towns and villages throughout the country. And it's not some sort of faceless bureaucracy that's doing it. It's neighbors. And so what that means is that normal people have a chance to get involved. And when they do, they come to understand the process better. And that's why the heroes in the book are often Republicans and even Trump supporters who are standing up and saying, wait a minute, that's not true. What you're saying isn't true. There was no fraud. It's because they engaged the process and they understood it. I think the other thing that we could do in the future is to bring more transparency to the process so that people do understand how it works in their state, what the electoral process is, how votes are counted, you know, what is Congress's role in certifying? I think there was just a lot of confusion around that. Is it is it official? Is it ceremonial? So I think transparency and clarity could also come to bear. Mark, let me just follow up with you. And for every, I can't remember the, his, uh, is it Roan Bishop? Is that how you pronounce his name? Uh, the uh, Ron yeah. Bishop um, in Wisconsin, a uh, kind of rock rib Republican, a Reagan Republican, a real party man, 
who stood up to all of this and saw through it, you had Aaliyah Hoops in Pennsylvania who got involved, right? Who did what you, Matthew, what, what you said people need to do. You're dismantling um, my point, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just I'm I'm just pushing on it a little bit. No, because, it's good. It's good because because it it is a real challenge. So, Mark, what's your you take you take a stab at this question? Well, I mean, I think Daniel that the um, you know the tendency for people to believe what they want to believe and to silo themselves into internet platforms and social media that reinforce what they want to believe, tune into TV networks which are not really journalistic, they're propagandistic. You know, it has, it's severe, severely divided our society and has created, I think, one of the central problems of modern life. I don't know what the answer to it is. I know that for me, it's to do honest reporting and to write a book and, or, or write an article, which I, you know, believe to be accurate, which I believe is true. Yeah, I, I, I would say, I think you're both right. I would say bingo to that, that there is a kind of a fatalism among among even, you know, journalists that I know that, you know, it's Sisyphean. You can't, there's, there's nothing you can really do. But I think the answer is you have to keep doing it and keep reporting facts and keep reporting the truth and keep repeating it. And repetition yeah. is important. Anyway, but I, I, I'll get I off of my also, soapbox. But, if I can say one more yeah, thing. Yeah. You know, I think too that I have noticed particularly in the years since I've left the newspaper business, that I used to think of the newspaper I worked for, the Philadelphia Inquirer, as being a model of, of even-handedness. And, but I can see there's a culture at the Philadelphia Inquirer. There's a culture at the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. I think editors at these publications and TV networks need to be much more sensitive than they are to the perception of the, that they've given the public of being party organs or being spokesmen for a particular point of view. So uh, for instance, you know, I'm, I'm dismayed that my longtime friend James Bennett lost his job as editorial page editor of the New York Times because he, he allowed an op-ed to run which angered, you know, one section of, of their readership. To me, these are things that we in, the, in, the, in journalism need to do a better job of. Couldn't agree more. Matthew, I want to go back to something you said, which was that many of the heroes in the book are Republicans. And, and to many, in many ways, this book is somewhat a, a kind of a chronicle of a, let's call it a, a civil war within the Republican Party. And what I'm curious about is, since reporting this book, do you believe that that civil war is still going on with the Republican Party? Or has Trump, and in the wake of January 6th, has Trump fully claimed control of the Republican Party. In other words, will, will people like Hickman, chairman of the Board of Supervisors of Maricopa County, or Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State of Georgia who stood up to Trump, will they be able to do it again? I think we're in the middle of it right now. I think it's sort of undecided. Raffensperger, for instance, in Georgia, is in the fight of his life now politically because Trump has endorsed his opponent a representative from Georgia who, in the wake of everything that happened, decided to run for secretary of state, which yeah, very few people previously saw that as a glamorous or desirable political job. Now people are realizing that it is enormously powerful. And if you control it, then you could push votes around. So there, there is a real challenge there and it's happening across the country. So I think it's unknowable at the moment where it's going to shake out. The other thing that you point out in your book, and there's always this looming undercurrent of potential violence. You know, at least several of the people who you chronicle 
go in hiding, go on the run, leave their houses, are subject to kind of relentless death threats. And these are mostly the people who are trying to get the votes counted. The staffers in the Secretary of Education's office in Georgia have bulletproof vests at the ready. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And since January 6th, it feels like that looming sense of, of potential violence has only increased. How did this threat, how did this kind of sense of violence or the possibility of violence affect the people that you chronicle in the book? Uh, the victims of it? You yeah. Know? Well, it's like you said, they, it upended their lives. They ended up going on the run. Everybody from, uh, you know, election workers just volunteering their time. Uh, up to, you know, as you mentioned, Secretary of State Raffensperger in Georgia uh, was accosted by oath keepers in his neighborhood. They had been waiting outside his house. He luckily had state troopers with him uh, who were able to turn these guys away. But that's not the case for people who are just volunteering their time. It means that our system does have vulnerability. It's decentralized. It's run by normal people who are, for the most part, trustworthy but it is vulnerable in some ways, and it is frightening to see people chased away by these threats. We also saw plenty of people who stood up to it, who, who you know, refused to buckle. Um, Gabriel Sterling comes to mind in Georgia, who very uh, dramatically took issue with Trump's rhetoric and with the kind of things that were happening around him. And I think, you know, the, the people, the American people who are involved in running the elections, some of them are going to be frightened away, without a doubt. But I also think that some people are going to step up because we see the stakes. You know, people aren't cowards for the most part. If they recognize that this is a time to be counted on one side or the other, then and then they're going to step up. Yeah, I was just going to uh, pick up because I caught you guys on uh, uh, Lawrence O'Donnell's Last Word last night where, you know, he was like looking for his confirmation bias that democracy is now, you know, threatened with all these new laws. Partisans are going to be able to overturn the results of the election. And you pointed out, well, actually, you know, what our book shows in part is Trump supporters in so many of these states, not just Georgia, but Michigan, Aaron Van uh, Longveld uh, in Arizona, Clint Hickman, all Trump supporters and Republicans stood up to what Trump was trying to do, refused to go along, because as you point out, when you get a job as an election official, you kind of have a duty to be honest, and most people are. And we shouldn't expect that as a result of these laws, partisans are going to overturn the elections in state after state. Yeah, I think when, when people get involved, whatever the political direction they come from, they have to kind of discard their fantasies about the way things work and deal with the reality of how things worked. And I think when you get your, you get, you know, knee deep, into the, the uh, practical details of conducting an election and what it takes to collect and count all of these votes, it gets to be a lot more difficult to make these sweeping statements with no foundation in reality. So what happens, I think, to many people, if they're honest, and I believe most people are, is that they have to say, no, I have firsthand experience with this, and this is not the way it works, or this is not what happened. I guess the question is, particularly as Congress uh, takes up these voting rights bills again, is the extent to which Republican-controlled uh, state legislatures are going to be able to 
control the machinery of elections. But even Republican state legislators didn't do what Trump wanted them to do. The Republican leaders in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, right. all in states that were, you know, had strong Trump support, Republican-controlled legislators, and none of them overturned the results of their election and sent alternate electors to the Electoral College. Nor did, nor did any judge, including Republican yeah. and Trump. Including Trump-appointed yeah. judges, yeah. 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 Not a single case. They didn't win a single case. So I think that you know, one of the problems of uh, modern social media is it, it amplifies the voices of very few people. Our evidence shows that, in fact, most people are honorable and, and are, are, are determined to do the right thing. Let me ask about uh, Trump, who we haven't actually talked about all that much yet. I mean, he's sort of the, the blunderbuster in chief, pushing all of these conspiracy theories. And I know you, you didn't interview him and that you know wasn't really the focus of, of this book. But what, what do you think at the end of the day he believed? Do you think he actually believed there was massive fraud um, and that he was cheated out of his uh, rightful victory? Or was that just an elaborate kind of rationalization to do anything he possibly could to hold on to power? Now, I know you're not inside Donald Trump's mind. Well, I've actually met Donald Trump. I, I spent a few days with him. And, you know, I would have this is going back many years. And for most of his life, he has been able to adopt as a belief what he wants to be true about himself, about his business, about, you know, whatever project he's selling. And so I think his entire life has been spent in a world where the truth really doesn't matter. You know, all that really matters is what benefits him. And so I think at this point in his life, he really does believe that uh, the election was stolen from him. And he believes it because he wants to believe it, because he wants it to be true. And I think that's how his mind works. We are on the one-year anniversary of January 6th. Um, and uh, I, I was struck by uh, one passage in your book that I think has gotten some attention, because you're, you're really focused on the run-up to January 6th, as the, which you say was the real insurrection, the efforts to stop the steal, as it were. So uh, you write on page 209, in the weeks and months after the January 6th riot, it was labeled an insurrection, in quotes. If so, it was a sloppy, ill-planned, and tragic one, but also buffoonish. A mob with a horn, spear-carrying, faux-barbarian chanting gibberish in the U.S. Senate chamber, and combat-clad rebels rifling lawmakers' desks at random looking for evidence. It had no more chance of overthrowing the U.S. government than hippies in 1967 had trying to levitate the Pentagon, an event some of us dimly remember. Um, but you're, you're kind of suggesting there maybe we're making a bit too much of January 6th, as awful as it clearly was, the idea that um, the over that the that there was an imminent overthrow of the government was never really um, realistic. I am making that argument, um, and Matt, I've dragged him along with me. No, I, I agree. Flesh it out, because uh, you'll upset a lot of people if you do, I'm sure. So. Well, I mean, it was terrible. And, and the people who were responsible should be prosecuted, and many of them are being, and sent to prison. But what did they do? They delayed the proceedings of the Congress by several hours. Um, you know, the, the vote that was taken at the end of the day was the vote that was going to be taken before any of this happened. I mean, the idea that... 
they were somehow going to completely overturn the government of the United States is preposterous. But a far more serious threat, which was the one mounted in states all across the country, where they tried to convince state legislators to basically negate the election results, where they tried to convince judges to throw out the procedures and the election count, all of which failed. So to my mind, what happened on January 6th was a terrible and shameful temper tantrum thrown by Trump supporters who were frustrated because they had lost. And, and Trump, most of all, was frustrated because he lost it. I think probably sitting in his, his dining room there at the White House was hoping beyond hope that maybe somehow this mob, which was his last resort, was going to restore him to power. I think too, if I could just add something, is that we tend to think of this, it seems like it emerging in two, two ways that I think are both errors. Uh, is on one side, people are turning away from January 6th, minimizing what happened. Um, and just I saw there was a, a Republican commentator a couple of days ago said, oh, it was a really bad day. And on the other side, people are fixated on it, uh, on the details of that day in isolation. You know, how many minutes was it between when Trump spoke and, and when they entered the Capitol and things like all of which are worthy of attention but not necessarily in isolation. And so what we wanted to do with this book was to, to answer the question, why? How did we get to this place? Hopefully we addressed it somewhat. You know, you you mentioned maybe the bigger threat, not just in the state legislatures, but the, the John Eastman memo, which I think you call, this was striking to me, the most seditious document ever to come out of the White House in American history. And of course, if you'd had a different vice president who was willing to go along with Trump and the Eastman legal argument, then you would have really had a problem, right? Yeah, I think he would have. Uh, and I think, you know, by if they'd somehow managed to derail the uh, uh, certification of the vote and throw it into the House of Representatives, I think that that memo rather sort of casually dismisses the objections that Democrats would have to this going on. I think all hell would have been raised. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That tried to happen. But it was also a complete fantasy because it talked about the uh, Pence citing the existence of alternate electors in six states. There were no alternate electors in any states. It's a fantasy, you know, and I think like much of this whole process was cooked up out of the whole cloth without any real grounding in reality. I think that, you know, frankly, Trump and Giuliani, is, as, even though I think they ought to better understand the way elections are run in America, I don't think they did. They didn't show any evidence that they understood how things went. And, and that shows in just how shoddy and how slapdash their efforts were, even in the states where they had lawyers and they had people marshaled to try to change the results. This was like many of the things that Trump has undertaken, very, very poorly thought through, very poorly planned and doomed to fail. And, uh, and worth reminding, indeed, it did. Well, I want to thank you, Mark Bowden and Matthew Teague, uh, for joining us. The book is The Steal, The Attempt to Overturn the 2020 Election and the People Who Stopped It. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Thank you.